The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. Today's world news, what it means, where it's taking us. I bring you the one and only possible message of world peace. This is a message of hope, tremendous hope. And he said unto me, you must prophesy again. The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. That, that what Hamas did was horrific, and there's no justification for it. And what is also true is that the, the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is, is unbearable. And what is true is that there are people right now who are dying who have nothing to do with what Hamas did. And so if you want to solve the problem, then you have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to admit nobody's hands are clean, that all of us are complicit to some degree, There's a man who hates Israel. He, uh, as some commentators have pointed out, he uh, he didn't have too much to say about the Ukraine war going back to the pandemic. Not a lot to say there. But uh, you get him on the subject of Israel, little Israel in the Middle East, and you can feel the contempt. He says we're all complicit. Well, he's complicit on everything that's transpired in Gaza and in in southern Israel over the last month. And we'll come to that as we proceed on today's program. You're listening to Stephen Fleury, and this is the Trumpet Daily. You can get to the live video stream of this show every weekday morning at 11 a.m. in the central time zone of the United States. You can also get to our website where all of our literature, or at least most of it, is made available online. That's at thetrumpet.com, and you can email the show, too, if you'd like to contact us about anything, just to make you aware of Israel's 9-11, the documentary that we released just about a week ago. Uh, It's at the Rumble channel. Just go to rumble.com forward slash Trumpet Daily and scroll down just a bit, and you can watch that uh, documentary produced by our very own people in-house here. So we're uh, getting some really good feedback on that, uh, that production And I think at Rumble, it's up over 10,000 views at the moment. So uh, join the growing audience. You know, if you think about so many of the signature policies, um, executive actions, uh, foreign policy, you name it. It's with Barack Hussein Obama. So much of it springs from, number one, a hatred for Israel. And then number two a hatred for America. That's right. That's why he wanted to fundamentally transform it. This is, this is someone coming in the spirit of Antiochus and the Antiochus of old. I mean, he, he certainly hated Jews. Here, the dear leader is talking about the occupation being unbearable. And Israel hasn't occupied Gaza since 2005, almost 20 years. Gaza's been completely free. Gaza's been able to govern itself. 
Gaza chose Hamas. Hamas loves killing Jews. And people in Gaza City cheer in the streets when it happens. For, for almost 20 years, there's no occupation in the Gaza Strip. And yet there's Barack Obama talking about it as if it's a, what did we say? Some of the commentators saying it's an open air prison. They love that term. An open air prison. They're trapped. And now children by the thousands are being killed in the crossfire, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. And of course, we're, to, we're supposed to take whatever they say as absolutely factual. Israel is to blame, and we're all complicit in this, uh, this occupation that's, that's unbearable. So says the dear leader. We talked uh, last week about how that this, this wound, the peace process <coughs> that led to the pullout from Gaza back in 2005, and Israel essentially living alongside a Palestinian state. We've talked about how that that process that led to that two-state situation, that it was a deadly wound. And of course, now we're seeing that. I gave you this quote uh, last week on the show. It says, through the peace process, Judah has become vulnerable to uh, the enemy with very little freedom to strike back. It says just a few decades ago, it would have retaliated with far greater force, but not today. I mean, today everything has to be so measured. It has to be so precise. I think there's an article I have later on in my notes saying that if this, if this was some kind of genocide, then Israel would just carpet bomb the entire place and not send in its troops as it is. It's already lost dozens of, of, of Israelis to the ground invasion. And it's all because this has to be so carefully measured, quite unlike the Hamas terrorists, who once they puncture the, the, uh, the, the security apparatus, the fence, they just waltz right in and start murdering people. And I saw an interview last night, Carolyn Glick and, and this woman together with her husband, they actually went through one of the kibbutzes and saw the carnage. And, and Carolyn was just having her on basically to recount what she has seen because, as Carolyn Glick says, there's already people just denying it. I mean, look at the dear leader. The massacre happens on October 7, and he can't even really bring himself to say anything for three days. Three days. But then he goes on this podcast, and I mean, when he gets on the subject of Israel, he wants you to know that the occupation is unbearable. The occupation for the Palestinians is unbearable. Everybody knows what he's actually saying. He gets really interested. When it comes to fundamentally transforming America or destroying Israel, he's on board. He's on board with that. And he has a lot of help in the, the regime media. You can see why it's such a deadly wound for, uh, for Israel. And it's been a gaping, open wound for some time now. Speaking of the help in the regime media, listen to this from, uh, I think this guy, Mehdi Hassan, I think he's over at MSNBC, clip 14. The citizens of Gaza voted for Hamas, to quote once liberal lawyer Alan Dershowitz. That's just false, incorrect, untrue. 
First, half the population of Gaza are kids under the age of 18. The vast majority of them were not alive, let alone old enough to vote the last time elections were held in Gaza back in 2006, 17 years ago. Second, Hamas didn't even get a majority of the vote back in 2006. And in fact, even this year, prior to the current conflict, one survey found only 27% of Gazans, barely one in four, picked Hamas as their preferred party. And third, even if everyone in Gaza had voted for Hamas, supported Hamas, they're still civilians protected by international humanitarian law. They still can't be targeted. The kind of people who think you can target people for death because they voted the wrong way are people like Osama bin Laden. Even if they voted for and supported Hamas, that they still should be shielded from any other crossfire. They, st- they still are civilian. Even if you vote Nazi, you're protected. The whole nation, it's just those, the tiny, tiny sliver of the population. I like how he, I like how, for one, I like how he's a Gaza election denier, okay? So, I mean, so much expertise on how elections play out and where there was fraud or who wasn't involved. When it comes to any nation abroad, you get on the subject here at home, here, here in the United States, however, and you're liable to go to prison. You're liable to go to prison. But children, he says, I mean, there's a lot, half, half of Gaza's children and they can't even, they're not even old enough to vote. So, uh, so what my message to you is that everybody in Gaza is, they're just seeking a Palestinian state. That's all they want. I mean, one that encompasses not just Gaza, but also the West Bank. Never mind, you know, they're out there chanting from the river to the sea. Forget all that. I mean, the Guardian is here to help you understand that that doesn't really mean wiping the Jews off the map. No, no. No, they actually quote a psalm, if you can believe it. The Guardian. So, So the terrorists are out there saying, let's remove the Jews from the river to the sea. I mean, go look at a map. I'll help to educate you a little bit if you'd like. You can, you can take my word for it, or you can listen to the Guardian. From the river to the sea, that doesn't really mean wiping out the Jews. No, no, it's, it's just a nice little catchphrase. They're going up against a lot, aren't they? You talk about an open, gaping wound. Judah's wound, as it's referred to in the book of Hosea. Judah's wound, as it's referred to in uh, in uh, in the Bible. I'll come to that later if I have some time. While we're on Hassan, play that the the other one we have. I think it's 15. Let's talk about Gaza, Congressman. How much damage is Joe Biden's support for Israel doing to the Democratic base? And how much is that going to cost him in places like Michigan with younger voters, Arab-American voters, in a key battleground state, which, thanks to that new poll from the Times, we already know he's struggling in even before this war. Could this war cost him re-election? Yes, it could. And let me just be very clear. It's one thing to support Israel, which the U.S. has always done and will continue to do. It's another thing to never hold Israel accountable for their behavior, whether it's related to the occupation, the open-air prison that is Gaza, or the war crimes that are taking place right now during this siege. That guy there is a Democrat congressman. So he's on with Hassan. They're saying, look, we're, if we support Israel in this cause, that's going to hurt Biden's reelection <laughs> chances. 
These people are so deranged that they actually think, yeah, a majority of people out there agree with us. A siege, an open-air prison, and all the catchphrases right out of the Democrat playbook. Judah's wound. L- look, at how, <clears throat> look at how this has played out. I'm still recovering from a bit of a cold. So excuse my voice. Maybe I should tone it down just a, ba- just a bit. So as, as I said in doctrines this morning, I've got to make it through 55 minutes. And as I look at the clock, I've got a good ways uh, to go. The, the Arab world, the Palestinian people, they have known, they've known from the beginning of this so-called peace process that the plot is to destroy Israel. Just if Israel give it, gives an inch, they take a mile. If they give Gaza over, they still, they still carry out October, October 7 attacks. And listen, since October 7, we're not even a month removed from it yet. There's already October 7 deniers. As I said, the dear leader didn't really have anything to say. But he gets hot under the collar when it comes to, you look at his first two terms, and by the way, there's quite a few people talking about this presidency, the fake one, being Obama's third term. We were telling you that from uh, the beginning. But this, this individual, this Antiochus, the dear leader, his worldview, as I said a moment ago, springs from a hatred, a contempt for Israel and for the United States of America. And when Donald Trump came into office, he just moved right, right down the street. So he was running the shadow government in those four years between Obama's second term and the start of his third term. In a lot of ways, you could call it a fourth term almost. Because look at how he weaponized the government against Donald Trump when Trump was in office. We'll come to that more if we have time. There's lots and lots to get to on today's show. But just to come back to this worldview, this, this was when I, I think he was out plugging his book, Dreams from My uh, Father, and listen to Barack Obama. This is a younger version of Obama as he recounts uh, an episode that occurred during his youth, clip 16. Typically, when I went to parties in high school, oftentimes there were three or four black people in a room of 300. Uh, So finally, a black friend of mine and myself decided to invite some white friends to a black party out in an army base, uh, out in uh, Schofield Barracks, one of the major army bases in Hawaii. And we immediately sense that they're a little uncomfortable being in this minority situation. Uh, You know, they're sort of trying to tap their foot to the beat, you know, and they're, they're yeah, uh, being extraordinarily friendly. And uh, after a while, they decide, after about half an hour, they say, well, Barack, let's, let's get going. Uh, you know, we're feeling kind of tired. We're feeling this or that. And suddenly, th- this sense that uh, what I have had to put up with every day of my life uh, is something that they find uh, so objectionable that they can't even put up with it for a day. And these are good friends of mine and, and, and uh, 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 folks who, who had uh, stood by me for many years. Uh, it, it, something is triggered in my head and I suddenly start seeing, as I say in this passage, a new map of the world. A new map of the world wherein white people are racist 
America, they have it, he would later say during his presidency that it's like in our DNA. In our DNA, the tables were turned and suddenly these whites, they figured out what Obama knew his whole life, that everything was stacked against him. And then you want to talk about, you want to talk about subjects that he really got interested in, as I say. Just go back and look at some of those episodes involving police officers and, uh, and black perpetrators and how that this man always, always, always sided with the perp. Even before the facts came in, he knew, you see, because of the racism. He had, he started to see a new map of the world when he was young. He had guys like Frank Marshall Davis, Khalid Shalidi, the, I forget the ones that hated, hated the Jews that I mentioned him last week. He knew him in Colombia. Rashid Khalidi, maybe is his name. All of these people hating Israel hating white people, hating America's founding. Just coming back to what he said regarding Israel. This is uh, an article titled, Obama Says the War in Gaza is Killing People Who Have Nothing to Do with What Hamas uh, Did. Is that true? That's what the dear leader says. Israel's just in there indiscriminately killing all of these innocent civilians. Mehdi Hassan, for his part, says that, well, hey, even if they voted Hamas, they still should be protected and treated like civilians. Obama's remarks come after Obama earlier warned that an Israeli ground operation in Gaza could backfire. This is that American thinker. It says here, Barack Obama is not a learned man, but it's a mistake to confuse that with stupidity. He is, in fact an extremely clever man, combine that cleverness with the fact that he truly dislikes Israel and has aligned himself with those countries and groups that wish to destroy the country, complete, complete with the genocide of all of its inhabitants, and you end up with someone who covertly signals to Israel's enemies his ideological allegiance with them, even while seemingly treading a morally meaningless line right down the middle. You know, what Israel did, what, what Hamas did was bad. What Israel's doing is bad. That's how he tries to tiptoe down the middle road. But people that know him, people that have studied him, people that have just watched him, he was, in, he was openly the president for two terms. They know. They know. It says here, those of us who have paid close attention to Obama over the years know that he dislikes Jews and Israel. I mean, just look at the way he treated Benjamin Netanyahu, for example. Look at how he cozied up to Iran and and Muslim Brotherhood. Really, he wasted no opportunity to stick it to Israel, even as he empowered Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah. David Limbaugh, he tweeted out in response to Obama's recent remarks, He says, it amazes me that this person is well-respected and treated like a senior statesman of goodwill. He accelerated leftist radicalism in this country. Speaking of now his hatred for America, radicalism, radical leftism in this country to warp speed. And he continues doing it today. He is perversely anti-American. He's he's perversely anti-American and anti-Israel. 
coming back to this American thinker piece. It says, after Hamas's maniacal, psychotic, brutal attack on Israeli civilians on October 7, Obama kept a very low profile. Well, why would that be? Hamas massacres 1,500 Israelis, kidnaps another 300. And, and Obama didn't, doesn't have anything to say. Why is that? Well, comes back to that worldview. He began to see the world in a completely different way back when he was young. Writes about it in his biography. It says here, if he's talking about an occupation, Obama can only be referring to the same occupation Gaza and its terrorist inhabitants decry, namely the Jewish presence on the land between the river and the sea. It says, if you look at a map, and I'm not sure Obama has, Hamas and its bloodthirsty adherents want it all, and they want it just like Gaza itself, free of living Jews and preferably littered with bodies of dead ones. Well, they got that on October 7. Southern Israel just littered with dead bodies all over the place. And the dear leader, he was silent for three days, didn't have much to say. This is Abe Greenwald talking about Obama's recent remarks. It says, Barack Obama hasn't commented on many serious matters since he left the White House. He mentions Ukraine, he mentions the pandemic. You could add in there the October 7 massacre. But then he sits down with these podcasters, and I mean, he waxes eloquent. Oh, yes. Hamas, you know, what they did was horrific. But what Israel's doing, I mean, this is unbearable for the Palestinian people. It says here, Obama said that in order to resolve the conflict, it will require an admission of complexity. We must face, he says, what may seem contradictory ideas, namely, what Hamas did was horrific and there's no justification for it. And what is also true is that the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is unbearable. That's the quote. It says here, ignorance as complexity, vintage Obama, ideological banality delivered as omniscient revelation of a true nuanced path, and the applause came roaring through. You heard it in the opening. They applauded him. Once he mentions the occupation, that's, a, that's an applause line for the radical left. It says, never mind that Israel d doesn't occupy Gaza and pulled out in 2005. Obama speaks in stentorian generalities because details expose truth. And in this case, the truth is simple. It's Hamas's fault. All of it, the terrorism, the Palestinian trauma, the current war, and the deaths to come. As one Israeli spokesperson after another keeps saying, they started this, and so we're going to finish it. It's that simple. That's the way it would be with any other nation in the world. But not with Israel. <clears throat> not with Israel. The dear leader and the regime supporting him. I mean, they hold Israel to a completely different standard. Because the goal, you see, the goal is to remove them from the river to the sea. From the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. They want all of it. And, and lots of littered dead, dead Jews as part of the package. They love that. That has been Hamas's strategy since 2005. Kill Jews. 
kill Jews, and yet you've got apologists on TV that are supporting Hamas openly. It says here, there's nothing contradictory. There's nothing contradictory about the slaughter of Jews and the suffering, uh, the suffering of Palestinians. Hamas is responsible for both keeping their own people in generational misery to justify an exterminationist war on Jews. Palestinian op uh, oppression hasn't been unbearable to decades of Palestinian leaders. I mean, they're millionaires living in Qatar or wherever else. Its goal, they've fought for every time Israel has tried to give Palestinians their own state. It says here, why? Because they'd rather kill Jews than be free. How's that for nuance? Hamas hungers for innocent deaths in Gaza. Each instance, each instance gets uh, customarily multiplied by the Gaza Ministry of Health, travels at light speed to major news outlets, and is wielded by Hamas's most effective foot, foot soldiers, the Western activists who fight the only war that Hamas can actually win, the war of information. They just spread propaganda and lies. And you've, guys, you've got guys like Hassan, who are quite happy to distribute them. Those lies get right around the world, as Churchill used to say. It says, meanwhile, Israel absorbs operational setbacks and the loss of Jewish life just to minimize civilian deaths. At last count, 24 Israeli, Israeli soldiers have been killed in the current ground operations. Have you heard that on the news? They've already lost 24 soldiers as they go from building to building through Gaza City. Is this really a siege? Is this really genocide? You've got Democrat congresspeople who will openly say that. It says here, Obama doesn't do details. He fancies himself a big idea kind of guy. And his big idea is that we're, we're all to blame. We're all complicit. No, he's largely to blame for this mess says, well, it goes on and quotes him. It says later on, it's big of Obama to shoulder the blame along with the rest of us. And in repayment for his generosity, I offer a few words to help him out in his soul searching on this issue. President Obama, perhaps you shouldn't have chosen as the crowning goal of your foreign policy, the enrichment and legitimization of Iran Hamas's chief benefactor. How about that? Not a, not a lot of nuance to that position, but that, that was his, that was his number one foreign policy aim to empower Hamas's benefactor. And now here we are. It says here, as big ideas go, the one, that one might have been a little premature. Similarly, you might have eased up at one point on your eight-year-long, historically unprecedented effort to weaken the vital bonds between the U.S. and its democratic ally, Israel. That was part of the foreign policy aim as well. As I say, there's more and more people that are waking up to the fact that this is, this is the guy running the show. Listen to this commentary from Sky News Australia, clip two. Obama, who we know is the real president of the U.S., what's he been up to, Rita? Well, yes, this is the man 
who was behind the Iranian deal, the man, yep. man who enriched and emboldened the Iranian regime that funds Hamas. He's got some thoughts about what's oh. happening in oh. Israel and Gaza, and he um, uh, he thinks we're all complicit in, to some degree. But, you know, the thing that everybody has to remember about this is that what's happening right now in the White House is essentially Barack Obama's third term. You know, so much of the foreign policy establishment are all the people who worked for Barack Obama. They helped yep. do the Iran deal. They did the Arab Spring. You remember what a fantastic disaster that was. <laughs> Barack Obama has said that he would love to just sit behind the scenes and get the briefings and tell people what to do and say. It's clear that Barack Obama is partially responsible for what's going on here now. Working behind the scenes, as Obama said he would rather enjoy doing, and he is. There was this story at NBC last week that uh, we didn't have time to get into. Biden quietly tapped Obama to help shape his AI strategy. This is NBC basically admitting that uh, Obama, on, certainly on this subject, is uh, running the show. It says here, former President Barack Obama quietly advised the White House over the past five months on its strategy to address artificial intelligence, engaging behind the scenes with tech companies and holding Zoom meetings with top West Wing aides as President Joe Biden, at President Joe Biden's request, according to the aides of both men. It says here the joint effort culminated Monday when Biden signed an executive order. Well, you can go look for that NBC uh, report, but as commentators have noted, I mean, the White House, the Oval Office, it's just full, full of Obama people. Jake Sullivan, you could go right down the list. And here's, here's NBC with the big reveal. <laughs> this is uh, Fox News commenting on that story last week, clip four. Earlier this week on Monday, Biden signed an executive order looking to establish regulations and funding for the federal government when it comes to AI. Then you go to NBC News reporting that Biden has actually tapped former President Obama to help in this effort. Obama has been working the past five months um, with White House senior staffers on this effort. Raymond, big question here is why keep that quiet? Well, because they don't want to show what all of us already assume and know. This is the continuation of the Obama administration. This is the fourth term of Obama, or the third term of Obama. That's what we're seeing here. But the holdovers in the, all the foreign policy, the dithering diplomacy, that's all Obama doctrine. The way the economy is being handled, Obama doctrine, the border, though it's probably worse under Biden than it even was under, under Obama. He at least deported people. But the key takeaway here is Obama for five months had Zoom calls with White House staffers and tech leaders. Why is he the gray eminence of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Why is his hand so deeply enmeshed in, in domestic policy? And now he's doing robocalls in Virginia because his former attorney general, Eric Holder, runs something called the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. So they have the old Obama hands are in charge of everything in this administration. Yeah. They're to blame. But They're also, not the solution. They're complicit. They own, they own this war in Gaza, Ukraine, and quite a, quite a few other dumpster fires all over the world. They, they're, they're all, they all have dirty hands. 
and the only one out there really speaking truth <laughs> to this corrupt power is Donald Trump. And he's off to court today where he's forced to testify in this ridiculous case about the estimated worth of his fortune. He was dishonest. He overvalued Mar-a-Lago. Listen, listen to what Donald Trump said. I think this was out in front of the courtroom earlier uh, today. This is uh, clip eight. So while Israel is being attacked, while Ukraine is being attacked, while inflation is eating our country alive, I'm down here. And these are all political opponent attack ads by the Biden administration. Their poll numbers are terrible. You show what happened today. The New York Times and CBS came out with a poll that I'm leading all over the place. But uh, it's a very unfair situation. This is really election interference. These are political operatives that I'm going to be dealing with right now. Uh, you have a racist attorney general who made some terrible statements. And we just see some more that came over the wires today. It's a very sad situation for our country. We shouldn't have this. This is for third world countries. And it's very unfair. It's very unfair. But in the meantime, the people of the country understand it. They see it. And they don't like it. They don't like it. Because it's uh, political warfare, as you would call it, or political lawfare. Another name. I got a lot of names for it. But usually it takes place in third world countries and banana republics. And nobody's ever seen that to this extent. We've never seen it yet. You talk about uh, policy springing from hatred. You can uh, add Donald Trump to the mix as well. So many people that hate America, they, they hate Israel, and of course they hate Donald Trump because he loves America and he supports Israel. Coming back to the, the puppet and the puppet master, listen to Victor Davis Hanson recently on Fox. This is clip five always in the shadows. He said to us, Sean, when he was interviewed once, what was his dream presidency? And he said to be away from the hard work and just phone it in from his basement. Obama <laughs> said that. So I think this is the ideal situation he's always hoped for, to be kind of the well, puppeteer and have Joe the puppet. And again, I don't, I don't want to just keep patting ourselves on the back, but if you, if you watch the Trumpet Daily back uh, after he made those uh, remarks, what was it, 2020, I think it was, with the, the funny man who's not so funny. He said, yeah, I'd like to be in my sweats and working, uh, working the puppet from the basement. We played that almost on an endless loop over and over again. We should, we should line it up for today. It's perfect. It's exactly what's happening. You can't make this up. Listen again to Victor Davis Hanson, clip six. We know that Utopian leftists have one cardinal rule, Sean. That yeah, one cardinal rule. They're never subject to the disastrous consequences of their own ideology. It always falls on distant others, and that's true of the Obamas. That his great gift to us, we're watching unfold in the Middle East. It's the Shia crescent idea of empowering Iran, Damascus, Beirut. Hamas balance it against the Israelis and our friends in the Gulf, and that was supposed to make creative tension. And you saw what happened; it blew up the Middle East. That's uh, Obama's gift to the Middle East. It's Obama's gift to America. I think it was yesterday, Saturday or Sunday. It was the 15-year anniversary 
of Obama being elected, just a few days, remember, a few days after he vowed to fundamentally transform the United States. Here's MSNBC remembering that, clip seven. Today marks 15 years since Barack Obama's historic election as the 44th president of the United States and this nation's first black president. And though much has changed since his two terms in office, former President Barack Obama continues to be a powerful voice for democracy around the world and at home. Yeah, he's been uh, working behind the scenes for five months, establishing policy to come out from the Biden team. Five months. Then you get him talking about Israel or Trump or anything, anything having to do with America's founding. And he has a lot to say. He does. You can see why with that history that's still celebrated by the regime media and everyone else. You can see why they're so nervous about all of these disastrous poll numbers. They were all over the Sunday shows yesterday. The, the plummeting ratings or numbers for the fake president, Joe Biden. Listen to this uh, montage, clip 10. George, voters are just plain frustrated across the board. 76% of adults in this poll say the country is headed in the wrong direction. Only 23%, less than a quarter of the country, say that we're headed on the right track. And the issues that are animating voters' frustration, it's almost unspeakably vast and broad. Economy, 74% of Americans say it's very important to them personally. 69% say the same about inflation. Those are issues in our poll that tend to favor Republicans. Voters say they trust Republicans more than Democrats on those issues. This is about the voters in that poll story. They say the world is falling apart under Biden. That's from this voter named Spencer Weiss, who's from Bloomberg, Pennsylvania. He said, I would much rather see somebody that I feel I can be a positive role model leader for the country, but at least I think Trump has his wits about him. And then another person, Travis Waterman from Phoenix, says, I don't think he's the right guy to go toe-to-toe with these world leaders that don't respect him or fear him. He voted for Biden in 2020, but they see him as weak and now prefers Mr. Trump. That same poll says that 71% of voters believe that Biden, who's 80, is too old. Even though he's only four years older than Donald Trump, just 39% of voters believe that Trump is too old to be an effective president. This is probably going to lead to a lot of Democrats increasing the chatter that Joe Biden should step aside and, and, and make room for another Democrat. And I think the problem that Democrats have is they don't know who that Democrat would be right now. I don't think that uh, people look at Kamala Harris and feel like she is ready to take that step forward. They look across the rest of the party, governors, senators, mayors, House members, and they're struggling to figure out who they could put up if it's not Joe Biden. And so I think the reality is Democrats are probably we going to run Joe Biden. Trying to figure it out. We're, we're one year out, one year away from the 2024 election. You've got, uh, there was this New York Times poll over the weekend, five out of six swing states, and they're all tilting toward Donald Trump. The ones that the Democrats, by the way, stole those swing states in 2020. But the polls don't look good. This is from the New York Times as well. Many young voters have been reluctant to back Mr. Biden for some time now. Young voters. The, the numbers for black Americans, it's, it's for Trump, 20, 24% these days, when it used to be in single digits for Republicans. Same trends for Hispanics. This is young people. The Democrats have always 
have always attracted the younger generation. It says here the latest battleground state polls at the New York Times and Siena College show Mr. Biden holding a one-point lead over Mr. Trump among registered voters uh, under 30 and a six-point lead among likely voters in the same age category. So he's just barely holding on to the young vote in uh, these all-important swing states. And Trump, for his part, he's out there. He's trying to attend to all of these indictments. He said this. This was at a a Florida Freedom Summit over the, the weekend, clip three. And three years ago in that same debate, Crooked Joe stood on the debate stage and said, I quote, I have not taken a penny from any foreign source ever in my life. I mean, that's one of the greatest lies in history, right? And he said no one in his family had ever taken or made any money from China. Well, he's better off if he puts it just China, because how about all the others? But China was a big payer to them. Now we have pictures of the checks deposited directly into his account. If Joe Biden was not guilty and everybody knows he was, he just lies. No, it's just a lie. Everything's a lie. The whole thing is a lie. The whole election was a lie. Indeed, the whole election, a lie. I mean, coming out as one commentator after another, and even NBC is saying, you know, it's actually Obama. I mean, that right there tells you the election was was a lie. Leave aside the, the ballot harvesting and all those things that helped to install this fake president in office. Who's the real president? If, if, Mehdi Hassan wants to dig into election lies. How about this one? No, no, he, he, he's an expert. When it comes to how elections run in Gaza and how that when people vote for Hamas, it really doesn't mean they vote for Hamas. He knows all about that. But for this, Trump's the only one, as I've said, and he keeps leading in the polls, no matter what happens in the New York court case, what happens in D.C. And that's why they're just over these polls. They're melting down on Sunday. You've got Morning Mika, spectacular meltdown earlier today on the Morning Joe show. Listen to this one, clip nine. Former President Donald Trump and his allies have started mapping out specific plans to use federal government, the federal government, to punish his critics and opponents if he wins a second term in the White House. The plan has been dubbed Project 2025, and the Post reports that Trump has named individuals he wants to investigate or prosecute. Those people include former Chief of Staff John Kelly, former Attorney General Bill Barr, former Attorney Ty Cobb, former Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley. That's according to people who have talked to Trump and spoke on the condition of anonymity. A person familiar with the matter said Trump has also talked about prosecuting officials at the FBI and Justice Department. Additionally... The Post reports the former president's associates have drafted plans to potentially invoke the Insurrection Act on his first day in office to allow Trump to deploy the military against civil demonstrations. Oh, so he's coming back to clean house. That's what they fear. That's why he has to be destroyed. They go on the roundtable discussion centers on all of the lawsuits and how that maybe, hopefully, 
hopefully, hopefully the people in America will finally wake up and realize that, hey, he's going off to prison. We can't vote for him. One year out, we've got a year of the, hopefully, hopefully we don't have to have a year of insurrection talk, insurrections that, that might happen. We've had enough about the January 6th Fedsurrection, but there they are. I mean, it is ominous. Trump's return, they're already, they're already bracing themselves for something such as that. Last week, I see we're just 10 minutes or nine minutes left in the show, so I guess we can forego the, uh, the promo for today and just carry on with one point briefly that we made last week with respect to the, the Bobby Knight segment and just the, really the attack on, on righteous authority. Now, as I said last week, in so many ways, Bobby Knight was not a righteous indi- individual. He was pretty crude in, in, in many ways. But he did uphold the rules at his program. And you saw the fruits that came from that. And as I was saying last uh, week, I mean, we, God expects us to be upholders of righteous authority. If he puts us into a God-given position, and that's what, to just use the example of a father, I mean, that's what it is. I mean, it's an office. We, we make this point in the, the book, Biblical Manhood. I mean, it's a God-ordained office. God is a family. He ordained these institutions from the beginning, and he tells us, he tells us how to organize them, how to set them up. Satan, of course, understands this and is actively working to undermine it, to blot it out, to destroy the institutions of marriage, of family, the role of the father. We've got another booklet, The Conspiracy Against Fatherhood. Satan is behind that. Satan is likened to a father in John 8, 44. It says he's the father of lies and murder. The world needs more righteous leadership, certainly in God's church. We need it. We have to have it. This is what it says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. It says, A minister then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Apt to teach. It says, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient. This is verse 3. Not a brawler, not covetous. It says, one that rules well his own house having his children in subjection with all gravity. Well, that's, that's not a message that you hear very often today, and yet it comes right out of the, the New Testament. You've got to be able to rule your house or your family well. You've got to be able to do it the right way. You've got to provide God-fearing leadership. That's what a, a righteous father does in the home, and it benefits the whole church. It benefits the whole of society. Herbert Armstrong used to talk about the foundation of any stable, strong society. It's the family. That's why the family institution has come under such a vicious attack from the devil and a lot of evil forces that the devil works through. Verse 5, verse 5 says, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how is he going to take care of the church of God? If you can't lead in the home, how are you going to be a leader, you know, in the church or in society? You look at Tucker Carlson made this point some time ago 
where he said, there's a few exceptions, but he said, if you look into the lives, the marriages, the families of so many people in positions of power today, I mean, it, it, it's shocking in some cases, just how much dysfunction is there. That's, that's, why, that's why the Bobby Knight story stood out to me in, in a good way, because there was an individual who ruled a, a, a school, or at least a, the sports department, uh, the, the basketball team of that school, he ruled it well. And his, his uh, players, for the most part, they loved him. And you see that in the tributes that have come in since he died last week. The world needs more of that, and you're seeing Isaiah 3 in stark contrast to what I described last week, or what's described here in 1 Timothy 3. We see what's described in Isaiah 3, where God has just taken away all of the, the real leaders, the strong male authority. Read it. Read it. Isaiah 3, verses 1 through 2, or 1 through 3. This is uh, Malachi 1. We can just close with a few more verses here in Malachi. Rule the family well, God says, to leaders in the church. God gives us all this charge because uh, a father, his role, it is a God-given office. Malachi 1 and verse 6, it says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? God expects it. <laughs> the, the problem with the Laodiceans following the death of Herbert Armstrong is they didn't fear they didn't fear God. They didn't honor the Father the way that they should have. They rebelled. They were rebellious sons or rebellious children. That's what happens when a father isn't there ruling well. You take the, the righteous role of the father away from the home, and it just turns to anarchy on a smaller level. But look at, again, look at what plays out in society. Where are the strong fathers? You see so much death and destruction, whether you look at what happened on October 7 or you just see what's playing out in the, the streets of America, the big cities. Where are the strong leaders? Where are the strong fathers? Where is there any honor or respect for righteous authority? Malachi 4, this is the last chapter, it says in verse 1, for behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that, that comes shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. God is telling his Laodiceans, his rebellious house, he's saying, look, the consequences here, everything is at stake. Verse 2, it says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Those who fear God can get back right. Those, those that set, set up their family in the spiritual sense the right way can get back on track. God says in verse 4, Remember you the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. I mean, Moses was like a father figure to those people of ancient Israel. 
God administered his government through Moses. That was righteous authority. That's something we, we celebrate and we uphold, as I say. Verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the eternal. And he, notice this, verse 6, He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. I mean, we have a lot to say on this program about one coming in the spirit of Antiochus or the Jeroboam prophecy. Here's one who came in the spirit of Elijah. That would be Herbert W. Armstrong. And what did he do? He, he established, he built the spiritual family of God. God did it through him. But Mr. Armstrong was like a father figure. This is what God's interested in. Turning the heart of the fathers to the children. So this is a father who appreciates that office and who accepts that responsibility and really pays attention to the development of those little ones. And then, because of using God's family government, the children's hearts turn to their father as well. That's a beautiful thing. That's a wonderful thing. God's family government. This is how God sets it up. This is how he organizes it. And this is something that we want to fully embrace. As I said, we've got an outstanding book on biblical manhood. If you don't have that, you can get to it over at our website, thetrumpet.com, or you can contact our operators and request a free copy. I think we distribute copies of that. Hopefully we do. The 800, 800 number is one 930 You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is The Trumpet Daily. If you'd like to email the show, you can send feedback, trumpet.com. Thank you for joining us on today's program, and we'll see you tomorrow.